Hello and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, an interview podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I talk to creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepherd, and you can find me on Twitter at IamFofos and on itch.io at marksofhighwater.itch.io. This week, I'm talking to Deep Anyway about the Monomic setting, a world where memory is part of everything. It's a setting for a number of these games, and you can find out a whole lot more in their next project, A Weaver's Almanac, which is currently on Kickstarter until the 15th of September. It's already funded, so you can help to fund even more fantastic content from amazing creators. Please go and check it out now. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So today we're interviewing Deep Anyway. Hi there, Dee. Hello. Would you take a minute just to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in indie tabletop role-playing games? Sure. Hello, I'm Dee Pennyway. My pronouns are they and them. Uh, I make games, specifically make games in the mnemonic fantasy setting. I've been told that it feels Western fantasy, uh, which tracks because I got a lot of my start from playing Dungeons and Dragons in high school and college. Um, so it has that kind of tone to it. But the games that I make are more thoughtful prompts to get you through the story of a session. So there's not so much rolling dice to see if you hit with an attack. It's more asking you a question about what that attack feels like. I am launching a Kickstarter. By the time this airs, it will have already launched and it is ongoing. Uh, a Kickstarter for the uh, mnemonic Weaver's Almanac. It's a collection of session frameworks for playing in the world of mnemonic, as well as a whole bunch of setting information about the world. Um, and how you can use it in your game. And then it also features a whole bunch of content written by designers in the indie space. Rituals, uh, micro games, poems, recipes, songs, uh, anything that can fit onto a page we want to include in this book. That sounds pretty wonderful. I'm really excited about it. Uh, the team I've got is it's 13 amazing designers that I've gotten to know over the past year or so. And uh, we're looking to expand that, assuming that we've got our funding to a much larger number. Fantastic. Do you want to name drop anybody or is it top secret? The names are all on our Kickstarter. Uh, I'm going to try and list off the names, but there's 13 of us. There's some really great people. Liam, who uh, is... Uh, the head of Sandy Pug Games. Friend of the show. Whose Kickstarter just funded uh, Monster Care Squad. Sinziek is uh, one of the people that I feel close and dear to more recently. He's always talking about stories and uh, design in the fantasy space. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that on Kickstarter. And, uh... It will have launched August 15th. If you're hearing this, there's about a week left to to back it unless you already have in which case you know tell everyone else to go out and back it because it'll definitely be good yeah <laughs> i'll be a pledge of course it's never too late tell us a little bit about mnemonic itself and then maybe we can explore a little bit about what the weaver's almanac has or might have sure um so mnemonic spelled m-n-e-m-o-n-i-c is a word that means something that helps you remember things and the setting for mnemonic is a setting that's built on memory. So it's the idea that uh, you know we remember things and our communities remember things, 
but what if the world itself also remembers things? So uh, something that happens uh, 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago, you know, we might pass down the story of that generationally. Uh, We might write down the story of that in our history books. We might write stories about it or tell stories about it or sing songs about it. Mm. But the world itself remembers things in a different way. You know, if a battle takes place on a field, the world might remember the people who died, but the world might also remember the way the wind was blowing that day, or it might remember the songs that the birds were singing, or the moment when the birds stopped singing. And so there's a lot of, the world remembers different parts of events, right? and the world cares about different parts of events. You know, as we get older and our memories shift, and sometimes we forget things, the world sometimes forget things too. Okay. There's ways to tap into the memories of the world and and access them. You can learn about history by reading the tapestry of memories that the world has kind of cataloged for itself. Yeah. Magic is powered by memory. So like if you have a strong memory of, of a rainstorm, uh, you could tap into that memory to conjure a new rainstorm, the present moment. So if your crops are struggling because there hasn't been any rain someone might weave a memory of rain to bring rain and help the crops grow the sort of question of memory in games just keeps coming up when we talk to designers at the moment just some examples federico sones nibiru is all about memory um christopher w reynolds his game a demon unnamed is all about degenerative illness and memory and steve d has just written a game called Relics, a game of angels. That is all about memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a recurring theme. It's it really is, and like you don't see it in mainstream games, right? I mean, so you're looking at all these these little indie games, and it's all people talking about experience and, to a lesser extent, trauma and how that affects them and how it affects communities and how it affects the world. I guess as mnemonic does. I just think that's really interesting how all of these things are coming out at the same time. And I'm wondering what's in the zeitgeist that's making us do that. (laughs) I I mean, I think there's a lot of it that's, you know, whenever something happens that taps into nostalgia, it gets us thinking about things that we remember. I grew up in the 90s. I'm a millennial. And so anytime someone brings up stuff that happened in the 90s in like pop culture i can i can immediately access memories of what was going on in my life at that time right yeah i don't know if it's like a generational thing but i think a lot of us are hitting those moments where we're like thinking back about things and like recontextualizing memories with new information definitely that's me (laughs) getting back to your game (laughs) rather than just exploring the themes around it yeah you tell us a little bit about who the characters are and what they do to interact with the world. You've mentioned that it was like a traditional Western fantasy RPG, but I bet there's a twist. <laughs> you know, there's always a twist. In Mnemonic, you are travelers in the world. Um, you're people who, for whatever reason, are uh, on a journey. And you meet with other travelers who are the other players in your group. And you, for some reason, all have the ability to weave magic, to weave memories. So you travel to these places where the memories are potent or maybe unresolved. One of the playtests that we did was uh, a town flooded. Right. And so we were going to the place that the town used to be to try and figure out how it flooded, 
and to try and when a disaster happens, the world has trouble letting go of things. And so you have these like echoes of memories. And so it's like in our world, in the real world, we had the idea of like ghosts of like, you know, a spirit of somebody that's un unable to pass on. Well, in mnemonic, you don't have ghosts. And it's not like the spirit of a person. It's more like the physical manifestation of the world's lingering memory. Right. This person is gone and they were gone so suddenly that the world is having trouble remembering that they're not there anymore. Yeah. And so you'll see figments of a person going through the loop of their day and trying to like finish the tasks that they were doing. And sometimes that loop becomes uh, more volatile or even violent. And so that's why you have some echoes where the only way to resolve it is to destroy it. It's not like you're destroying the last remnant of a person or a loved one. You're ending the loop and helping the world to resolve this memory of that person that's no longer there. So the, the idea is that you're travelers uh, helping to resolve these pockets of unresolved memories for the world. Yeah. And sometimes that means fighting. There is some combat the deck burner session framework is all about a it's like a gauntlet of challenges that you have to fight your way through in order to get to literally a boss fight and we have different framing for how that manifests within your group and within that story that sounds great because we've seen so many of these games about memory and about how society and people interact with memories and historical events, I've seen a lot of different mechanics for how that's handled. Do you have mechanics for how that reinforces the themes of your game? The way that mnemonic games are written is kind of in a thoughtful, asking questions kind of way. Right. And so you'll have a question that says, what is it about this place that reminds you of a moment when you were alone? Or you'll, you'll draw a card and the card will tell you this place has a memory that is full of warmth and care. Tell us about that memory. Yeah, okay. A lot of the questions that you get asked as players are meant to invite you to think about memories that your character has. Right. And then, you know, it's a game with magic in it. And every time you use magic... You're tapping into memories, either your own memories or the world's memories. Okay. And so depending on the roll, depending on the die you roll, it taps into different kinds and different strengths of memories. Yeah. Just as an example, the fire die is all about memories of fire. A lot of people have strong associations with fire. Like for instance, uh, every year when I was growing up, uh, we had birthday cakes. And so I have memories of candles with fire on them. Yeah. I can immediately tap into that if I need to like... I need to like light a match, but I don't have any matches. So I'm going to quickly tap into this memory of candles because I, I have that easy access memory. But when you roll the die, the die tells you, okay, is this a weak memory? Something that you know just like intuitively uh, and you don't have a specific moment that it calls on? Or is it a stronger memory, something deeply personal? Yeah. And then on the higher end of it, you might be tapping into a memory that's not even your own. Like it's the world remembering a fire. Yeah. And those memories are a lot stronger because when the world remembers something, it must be significant. Yeah. And then at the very top, like if you roll a six on the fire die, it's just like the world is remembering a fire that was so powerful that it taps into other memories of other fires. And so you have to roll that die again and it kind of cascades out from there. Right. That's kind of an exploding effect then. Yeah, yeah. But every time you roll, you're invited to think about what the memory actually is. Yeah. 
Oh, that's super cool. I really like the sound of the way that that would generate a kind of emergent narrative that comes out of the dice rolls. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a deck as well. Um, there's a card aspect to this. Is that like an oracle or is that part of the randomization? It's sort of the randomization, but it's in the deck burner framework. You have like a poker deck. Yeah. So four suits, uh, two through 10, Jack, Queen, King, Ace, and then two Jokers. And you're basically burning your way through the decks. You shuffle the deck, the Joker's on the bottom, and you just pull cards from the deck. And all of the numbered cards are the nothing obstacles that you're easily barreling your way through or past or around. Yeah. And then the face cards are like the big encounters. Like jacks are all rivals. So when a jack appears, it's like you round a corner and there's like your best frenemy. Yeah. Yeah. And they're here to like settle a score. Like the example that I talk about a lot is like it's Adora and Katra. Yeah. Okay. It's like Adora rounds the corner and she draws the jack of spades. And it's like, hey, Adora. And now we have to resolve this fight. Yeah. And so when you're burning your way through the deck, the face cards are like the punctuation marks. Uh-huh. Yeah. They're like beats in a story arc. The people who show up because it's annoying that they show up rather than it's extremely bad that they show up, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so we use the the deck of cards to like kind of generate that narrative. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't know where the jacks are going to be. You know that they're going to be there somewhere, which is kind of exciting because then it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have some rivals. We're going to have some secrets. We're going to have allies who show up. And it kind of creates this like pacing of uh, if this were like an episode of a show, like the cartoon show of this game that we're playing we wanted to make sure that we hit all of these beats and it's just a matter of what order we hit them in yeah absolutely and there's that kind of foreshadowing aspect as well isn't there? the players know that this is going to happen yeah yeah there's kind of a power to that um because with a die roll i guess you don't always know that you are going to get a certain number you don't know that something is going to explode in a session yeah but if you are going through a deck of cards you are kind of guaranteed to get a certain amount of face cards yeah yeah, well, then there's this this uh, rising tension aspect to it as well. Yeah. Because you're drawing the cards and it's a number, a number, a number, a number. And it's like every time you draw a number, it's like, I don't know the next card is going to be the one that like changes things. But I like in my heart, I know that the next card is going to be the one that changes things. Yeah. And if not, then you just get more and more tense throughout it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like a game of Dread or one of those other tower games. Yeah. The game Alex Roberts made, uh, Starcrossed, appeals to me a whole lot more than Dread does. Most, mostly because I don't really like horror games, but also because actually I kind of want the tower to fall down in that game. Yeah, yeah. Because it seems to kind of generate stories that are more up my street than, you know, just your generic horror stories, perhaps. Right. Maybe I'm just listening to the wrong actual plays of Dread. So there is that kind of tension building aspect as well. And I, that, that's a really clever way to build up a story arc through a mechanic. So kudos for that. Thank you. I developed it for Beyond the Rift, uh-huh. which is my Metroidvania RPG. <laughs> it's just a sentence I like, you know, Metroidvania RPG. Because I love games like Hollow Knight, where it's like you're exploring a world and you're kind of just like running your way through it. Yeah. But there's also this like frustrating backtracking aspect to it. And so I wanted a game that's like you're generating that world as you go, but without all of the annoying, I have to fight this boss over and over again. Yeah. The deck in Beyond the Rift is generating like the order of the rooms that you're visiting. So like all the numbered cards are like obstacles that you have to get past. And then the face cards are like, oh yeah, you found a power up or you found a helpful friend who will help you. You found a boss fight. 
Oh, that's really cool. Like a procedurally generated dungeon. <laughs> that sounds yeah, really yeah. cool. Yeah. Like, um, uh, what's it called? Rogue. Yeah, yeah. That sounds cool. I'm probably going to go and look that up because it's right up my street. <laughs> so, yeah, we've talked a little bit about mnemonic. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what we can expect in the Weaver's Almanac? Yeah. And it's still early days. We're a team of 13 people and we don't have any funding yet. So I've been hesitant to like assign people work. Um, so the content that we have so far has been mostly people writing what they're excited about. But I'm really excited about these 13 dice. There's 13 tables and like page long entries in the book where it's like, here's this genre of memory, like fire or rain or storms or metal or cloth, you know, things that people have like strong associations with. Right. And here's a table of what that memory might do or might manifest with in the world. Yeah, that sounds rad. It's just so much fun to play with. And the the template that we've got for it is so robust that I could very much see and I invite people to create their own tables. So like if you see that we've got 13 tables and none of them have the one you want, like it would be very easy to say, all right, you know what? Screw it. This is the paperclip die. I'm going to roll it because I've got strong memories around paperclips. That's totally valid. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the dice idea. Yeah. We're doing interesting things with world building. Every entry in our setting includes four questions for players to think about before they use it. And then they also include a framework for developing a story arc around that thing. So, for example, there's this place called the Dragon's Husk, where a dragon has fallen hundreds of years ago, and its corpse was so massive that it became like a part of the landscape. Right. And now the bones of this dragon have become like the architecture of like, like there's a dungeon in the dragon. Yeah. And it's filled with all of the like the belongings and the treasures that were had by the adventurers that the dragon ate. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it because it, it's like, okay, here's this place. And then here's exactly how you would fit that place into the context of a game. Yeah. Here's like a hook for where you might meet with your group of new characters. Here's the session framework of you go into the region where the dragon's remains are that people have been avoiding for so many years because it's spooky and because no one wants to go near a dragon's bones. Here's the deck burner framework where it's like, oh no, the world is having trouble letting go of this dragon. And so there's an echo of the dragon living in its own remains. And now we have to deal with that. Uh, yeah, you're right. That is cool world building. That's really neat. And we're doing that for every single entry in this book. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's going to get pretty big. It sounds really cool. And you're hoping to bring more people on board? 13 people is already a lot, but <laughs> if you can get more, then why not? So the idea is we've got four session frameworks. There's the first gathering, into the gray, deck burner, and then laid to rest, which is what happens when somebody dies. Mm-hmm. And then we've got our mess of world building entries. And then we've got our 13 tables of the dice. And then we've got about 60 pages at the end of this 180 page book. And what I want to do with that is invite people from the tabletop indie space to write one page pieces for it. So that could be like a short lyric game that fits on one page. Uh, it might be a poem about memories. It might be a short recipe. Like if you've got a recipe of baking bread that you want to share with the world and put it into the world of mnemonic, there's space for that. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like an appendix of everyone in the tabletop space. Come put something in the pot. We're doing a potluck of things that we've written. That sounds amazing. Okay, I'm very down with that. Yeah. It reminds me of what Nam and Sandy Pug Games did with their recent zine. That was basically sort of the similar thing, just kind of like a potluck of amazing content from the RPG and comic space. Just sounded brilliant. Yeah. What a cool idea. (laughs) I like bringing people together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've heard you referred to as a community organizer, so, you know, I thought it was uh, the right time to get you on board. Oh, gosh, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Zero pressure, no. I just think it's something that the space needs, kind of doing that creatively, because role-playing games are inherently very creative. The people who build them are very creative. Yeah. Having a space where we can share lots of cool creative ideas and, and put all of those together and for some people to be able to make some money out of that, that's that's fantastic. So I'm down with that. Yeah, I'm excited. Definitely be excited. That sounds wonderful. That sounds really good. I feel like I should have asked you earlier what you mean by deck burner because uh, you've said it a few times and I'm, I'm feeling like I've, I've missed a little bit of context. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about deck burner? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I wanted a game within our game, of big combat. This is the fight one. This is the part where we go and storm the castle. People that are standing in our way, and we're going to blow our way past them, and we're going to bust open the doors, and we're going to come into the throne room, and we're going to have to like have a big showdown with the scary lich or the scary vampire. This is Avalanche raiding Shinra Tower, right? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. But I didn't want to have to like roll initiative or like do attack rolls. So instead, the way that it works is you've got your deck of cards. Uh, you put the Joker on the bottom. That's like the final boss. There's another Joker somewhere in the middle. And then everyone takes turns. And then on your turn, you draw cards from the deck until you get to a face card. Right. When you get a face card, all of the number cards that you've drawn up until that point go into like kind of a messy pile in front of you. And then you sort out who wins the fight based on rolling some dice and... Uh, checking cards and see if they match the dice. Let's quickly sort out who won the fight and who lost and then what we gained or lost in between. And there's like point scoring. And if your points aren't enough, that's when you get into like, all right, I'm going to do some magic here to try and win anyway. Right. Cool. So like, I, I keep coming back to like the example of Adora and Katra. Well, why not? <laughs> yeah. So like there, you've got this rivals fight. Let's say Katra wins the fight. She wins by like let's say four points and Adora is like on the ground, not doing so great. And Katra is like ready to like walk away and leave her in the dust. And Adora is like, no, screw that. I'm not walking away from this fight. I'm going to win this. And uh, she says, give me a die. I want to win this fight. And then Katra's player, uh, who's another person at the table says, okay. And picks out one of the dice from the, the 13 tables and says here, roll this one. Let's say it's the rain die. Yeah. So rain calls memories of rain. If you roll well, it might be a flood. If you roll low, it might not be enough. Adora rolls a three, which is enough to give her like five points, and that's enough to win the fight. So suddenly Adora conjures this like burst of rain, and it gets the rain in Katra's eyes, and it gives Adora a chance to like win the upper hand. You know, it's like a little bit of a tilt in your favor. So what you've done there is you've perfectly demonstrated the the value of the magic system as well. And then I, I'm presuming that the the onus is on the player to describe what that memory looks like, which yeah, provided a, an ample example there. So 
That sounds really cool. And it's called a deck burner because you draw in loads and loads of cards. That sounds a lot of fun. Right. Yeah, you're burning your way all the way through the deck. And then at the end of it, uh, you've got all these cards that you've either captured or lost. And then we have to figure out who wins the boss fight, right? Yeah. So we take the cards that you've kept and we take the cards that you've lost and we do some mechanics things. If your score is high enough, you win. And if your score is not high enough, then the boss wins and they get what they want. Okay. Walk away defeated. Yeah. Unless someone wants to roll that die. Do some magic. Yeah. Okay, neat. Does that do away with the narration of the boss fight or do you still get that pleasure? I think you still get that, but it it happens after you know who wins. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's more about the build up to that moment. Yeah. So what does the other Joker do? Yeah, I'll do the, the breakdown of the face cards. So the Jack is your rival. Yeah. The queen is an ally, someone that is in trouble and you have to go and help them out. And then if you do well enough, then they join you on the rest of your journey through the, the place. Right. The king is called the tide and it's like something bad happens. And it's like in a pinch, you have to either go one way or go another way. And either way, you're leaving something behind. Yeah. A rock and a hard place. Yeah, yeah. And then the ace is called the gate. And it's basically the mini boss where it's like, here's a thing. And it's really strong. It's way stronger than anything you've faced before. If this were any other story, it would probably be the villain, except that we already have a villain. Yeah. And let's fight it. Do the best that you can. Okay. Yeah. And then the first Joker is called the choice. And that's what what happens there is the boss shows up and they're there. They're in front of you. And they get away and you have a choice to make of you either have to use magic or you have to like take a significant loss. Right. This is like big Zelda energy. (laughs) Yeah. So if you use magic, then great. You get to take everything with you and like keep going forward. And if you don't, it's like, oh, that hurts. Yeah. Maybe they like capture somebody or maybe they destroy the path in front of you or maybe you get knocked down and you have to like fight your way back up. Right. And then the second Joker is like the final showdown. Yeah. Well, that all makes sense. And it sounds very cool. I Yeah, I'd really like to do that <laughs> just on that principle. And so is that one of the many games that you have sort of within the, the framework of your system? Yeah. Yeah. You have some others as well. There's a uh, deck burner and then there is into the gray which is kind of like doing scenes i'm going to talk smack about blades in the dark a little bit yeah yeah absolutely do that here (laughs) it's a fun system i think it's well designed but there's a thing about it that bothers me which is that it has this thing called free play where you're just supposed to like play out scenes but it doesn't tell you how to do it yeah that really annoys me actually (laughs) it always has done ever since i first read the rules like what does this mean i love it but like what if i've never played a role-playing game before it doesn't explain that it doesn't even like say, oh, it's just improv. Actually, we were kind of talking about this on an interview I did with the designers of Otramundo. And they were saying, yeah, one of the things that Blades in the Dark does really well is define terms very vaguely in bold text and then not provide a glossary for that. And free play is the perfect example of that because it doesn't even make sense in context. Yeah. Yeah. I ruffled a lot of feathers when I brought that up on the Blades Discord. That's the thing that always bothered me about Blades. And so I was like, what if we had like a framework for like, let's like lay out the scene. Everyone has their role that they play within the group. Like you're either a healer or a defender or a breaker. And those roles give you like the strengths and the things that you lean on and rely on when there's a crisis. And so Into the Gray tells you, okay, here's a crisis and it's specifically tailored to your skill set. How do you resolve it? And how does everybody else help out? So like, If you're the healer, the crisis is someone gets injured. Oh no. How do you 
you know, bind their wounds? Uh, what does it cost to administer aid? Like, is are there other risks involved? Uh, who helps you do that? And then yeah. resolving it from there. And that's that's kind of what Into the Gray is. It's it's giving you a structure to play out those scenes for yeah. each of your characters. The other thing about Blaze in the Dark I don't like. <laughs> Here it comes. A lot of people talk about one of the great things about Blades in the Dark being that if you're playing a whisper, there's going to be magic and weird stuff. But the rules don't actually enforce that. Like they kind of do. And if your GM is doing what they're supposed to be doing, like you're paying attention to, okay, they're playing yeah. a whisper. That means they want to do magic stuff. Uh, but the rules don't say how to do that. It's kind of implied in that opening chapter where they say, if you want to do weird occult stuff and have that happen to you, then play a whisper. But it's never, never reinforced anywhere else. So yeah. And again, the term weird stuff is ill-defined. <laughs> Which is fine. It's got a mood and an aesthetic, and it works really well for a lot of people. But what I wanted to do with Into the Gray is say, okay, you're good at healing. Here's a chance to like do some healing. You're a breaker. That means you break down barriers. Here's a barrier. Go break it down. Right. And if you've got a group of six people, and each of you are playing one of the six roles, that gives you like the full spread of like what might happen in a session. Yeah. So that's Into the Gray. And then Laid to Rest is the... Oh no, somebody didn't make it out of that boss fight. One of the one of the things that you can do if your score is not high enough in the boss fight is someone can sacrifice themselves and then you don't have to roll any dice, you just win. But then the next session you have to deal with the fallout of like this person's not here um and we take a deck of cards and we draw cards from the deck and for every card everyone speaks a memory of that person. Oh, wow. So that becomes like a, the focus of a whole session of play. Yeah. And then at the and at the end of the session, if we want to, we can introduce that character's new character. That's really cool. That's a really neat way to incentivize people to sacrifice their characters, which a lot of role-playing games kind of don't have. I played a D&D game once where I got tired of my ranger character and I said, "Can I can we kill my character off?" And the dungeon master was like, but why? You've been playing this character for four years. And I was like, I know, but I want to play something different. <laughs> but I just love the idea that what you're effective, well, it feels to me like you're incentivizing people to build new characters because it is kind of neat to sacrifice yourself for the, for the greater good. Um, and like that happens frequently in media, but it doesn't happen. It's not like, it's not like something that we do typically in role-playing games. Um, it's frustrating because a lot of games don't give us a way to do it. Not to talk about Dungeons and Dragons, but in yeah. Dungeons and Dragons, like there, there's no way that I can say, I want to sacrifice myself to slay this dragon. I can put myself in harm's way and probably die. But it doesn't necessarily benefit everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I can't trade my character for a critical hit. And I feel like Blades in the Dark is kind of a similar space. You can push yourself and maybe trauma out in order to like get an extra die, but it doesn't guarantee anything. That's not that incentivizing. I'd like the narcissist in me definitely wants to say, yeah, actually, if you're going to focus a session on this cool character and their backstory, then maybe I'm quite happy to do that. <laughs> and if you don't, there's also a way to use laid to rest as a framework for setting the whole story to, to rest. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. We've, you know, we've done the dragon's husk storyline we've gone into the the dragon's bones we've put the dragons or the echo to rest and we could keep playing we could 
pick a new place to go to. We could, you know, start a new storyline. But this one feels finished. And how do we let this story end? And I like the idea of using a session where we're like, where we look back on the, the story and the journey that we just had and say, these are the things that we want to hold on to. And now it's time to let it go. Absolutely. And that sort of finality and closure is something that is missing from a lot of games. And it's something I've picked up a bit more in the in the creators I've been interviewing recently, that they are trying to provide finality and closure to their games because that's actually something that is missing. And it's very neat to put that in. I feel like for the, the health of the indie space we need to not just be playing one game and like we can play just one game as in our group if we want to but we need to not be stuck playing a game that doesn't fit with our needs yeah but a lot of the big games out there i won't name names don't give you a way to like say okay we're done playing this game now so that we can go play something else it's like the game never ends yes which may be the point but it's not very exciting Well, on that note of closure and laying to rest, I think it's time to wrap up the show. Dee, do you want to tell us a little bit about where we can find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me at Dee, that's D-E-E, Pennyway uh, on Twitter. You can also find the Mnemonic official Twitter account, which is Mnemonic RPG. Again, that's Mnemonic spelled M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C. I I spell it wrong literally every time I, I try to type it. Those are the places where I talk game design on social media. Uh, you can also find all of the games that I've published on Itch. My my subdomain, I guess is what it's called, is uh, mnemonicrpg.itch.io. Right. And you can find Beyond the Rift there if you want to go check that out. I do. Also, go back the Mnemonic uh, Weaver's Almanac Kickstarter. We're running for another week. Until the 15th. Yeah, please do, because it sounds pretty fantastic. And just the potluck bit at the end is definitely deserving of your money. So yeah, please go out and, and get that now. All that's left is for me to say thank you very much to you, Dee, uh, for coming on. And let's have you back next time. You've got something awesome to promote. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. No worries. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Dee for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. In two weeks, I'll be talking to Kevin and Matthew of Merrimoth Games about Atma, a role-playing game designed from the ground up for new players and single-session play. It's also currently on Kickstarter, and I'll pop that link in the episode description for you to check out too. It's still International Podcast Month, and all month I'm reaching out to those bastions of the indie scene, actual play podcast showrunners. In the next bonus episode, which will probably drop next week, I'll be talking to Ree from The Magpies, an actual play podcast using the Blades in the Dark system, which hits so many social justice issues that it will make your head literally spin. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts, or consider donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at IamFophos. That's I-A-M-P-H-O-P-H-O-S. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thanks, Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed. <laughs>